Hi, and welcome to the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. This is a podcast of first. This is the first episode of 2018. This is the first podcast in Legal's 40th anniversary year. And it is, of course, my first time sitting down for a chat with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Hi, Art. Hi. Good to be with you. On this installment, we are going to be talking about three hot LGBT legal topics from the January edition of Law Notes, which is appropriately titled Resist. Themes of resistance run through all three topics that we're going to be discussing. First, we'll talk about the Trump administration's retreat after a series of 10 federal judges put a halt to the administration's discriminatory transgender military ban. Second, the Supreme Court seems particularly resistant to several big LGBT rights cases. And third, the Iowa Supreme Court is resisting homophobic jurors. So first up this month, bowing to reality, the Trump administration responded to six court losses by dropping appeals in the transgender military cases. This means that as of January 1st, 2018, for the first time in U.S. history, transgender Americans can openly enlist in the U.S. military. Art, can you set the table by describing the procedural nuts and bolts of where the litigation is at this point and why the administration's response to these losses matters? Okay. uh, For anyone who has been asleep over the past six months, uh, you'll recall that in July, uh, President Trump tweeted out of the blue. Nobody knew this was coming. In fact, the Secretary of Defense was only alerted the night before that uh, transgender people will not be allowed to serve in the U.S. military. And uh, this uh, stirred great consternation because just a year earlier, the Defense Department had dropped the ban on transgender service, although they maintained a continuing ban on transgender enlistment. Uh, because they said it would take some time for them to make necessary adjustments before they could start enlisting openly transgender people. But they dropped the rule that people who were discovered to be transgendered would be discharged. And they began paying for sex reassignment procedures for transgender military personnel who were transitioning on the job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Major change. Uh, So President Trump, all of a sudden, out of the blue, tweeted that uh, he was not going to accept transgender people in the military. He claimed that he had, after consulting with experts and his generals, Mm -hmm. although in the whole time, uh, more than six months now since his tweet, uh, the White House has never identified who these experts and generals were. Uh, Certainly it wasn't the uh, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, It wasn't the uh, secretaries of any of the military departments or anything. Everyone was in, in, in the dark, and in fact... When uh, reporters asked for details about how this was being implemented, what was going on, people in the White House staff didn't know about it. The people in the press room didn't know about it. The Defense Department was caught totally by surprise. It's outrageous. I think I saw one reporter say that it was about that he spent five minutes before thinking about this issue before he tweeted it. Uh, And it took them an entire month to come up with a memorandum for him to sign explaining what he intended. And it was a three-part thing. Uh, The first part was that effective sometime in March, all known transgender people would be processed for discharge, regardless of their rank, regardless of their service record, regardless of how close they were to retirement and 
getting a military pension. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. They would be discharged. Uh, secondly, the existing ban on enlistment, which Secretary Mattis had extended for another six months, uh, he had announced in June that they wouldn't be ready to begin enlisting people to January 1st, 2018, uh, that would be made permanent. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, effective uh, the same date in March, they would stop paying for sex reassignment surgery. Uh, so shortly after uh, this uh, tweet, one lawsuit was filed, and then after the memorandum came out in uh, late August, three more lawsuits were filed. Mm-hmm. So we had them. They were geographically dispersed. One was filed in D.C., one was filed in Maryland, one was filed in the state of Washington in Seattle, and one was filed in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ended up with four lawsuits, uh, two on the East Coast, two on the West Coast, and as we reported in past editions of the podcast, at the end of uh, October, uh, one of the judges uh, granted a motion for preliminary injunction against this, uh, the provisions in the memorandum going into effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, although uh, this was Judge Kolar Catelli in District of Columbia, uh, although she found that none of the plaintiffs in the case before her had standing to challenge uh, the ban on spending for sex change operations. Uh, she granted the preliminary injunction on the enlistment ban mm-hmm. and on the discharge uh, uh, mandate. Uh, and that was followed in short order by Judge Garbus in Maryland, mm-hmm. who issued his preliminary injunction a few weeks later. And then early in December, we got our preliminary injunctions from the West Coast, uh, from Judge Peckman in Seattle and from Judge Bernal in Riverside, California. So we had four preliminary injunctions out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the administration is freaking out meanwhile and filing interlocutory appeals and asking motions for stays and trying to do something to prevent having to enlist transgender people beginning January 1st. Uh, And they struck out with the judges themselves who weren't willing to stay their preliminary injunctions, and they struck out with the two court of appeals that addressed the matter late in December, uh, the Fourth Circuit, which, uh, without issuing any opinion, just denied the motion for a stay, Mm -hmm. and the D.C. Circuit, which responded on December 29th with an explanation in which they basically endorsed the reasoning of Judge Kolar Catelli's decision. And I think an important point being established in these cases is that any government policy that treats people adversely because of their gender identity is going to be subject to heightened scrutiny. And we've had some courts of appeals that have ruled that way in miscellaneous other kinds of cases. This is the first time we've seen it in a military case. And the other important point about this is that usually the the courts are very deferential to the executive branch on military policy issues. Mm -hmm. But these judges unanimously reject that in this case. Uh, The four district judges expressly, uh, the Fourth Circuit by implication and the D.C. Circuit as well, uh, because they say, well, we defer when what we're deferring to is military expertise and experience. We don't defer to tweets that issue in the middle of the night on an impulse right. with no factual backup. All right, so here we are. It's December 29th. The Trump administration has lost their second stay appeal. They filed an appeal in the Ninth Circuit, uh, but uh, it doesn't look like they're going to win that. After all, it's the Ninth Circuit. So... Saner heads prevail somehow, and they decide, let's fight it out in the district courts. Let's not try to fight it out in the courts of appeals. We're not going to win there. We're not going to get this stayed. 
Great. Well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll chat about the recent cert denials from the Supreme Court in two cases that had big implications for LGBT people. Please join us for a very special evening celebrating Legal's long history of pathbreaking achievements at our 40th anniversary dinner on Thursday, March 15th at Capital in New York City. Legal nerds of New York, this is our Oscar night, and you are not going to want to miss it. Cocktails are served starting at 6, the dinner begins at 7.30. We are thrilled to present this year's Community Vision Awards to Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Judge Paul Feynman, and Jillian T. Weiss, three champions of the legal community who have made history and forever improved the lives of LGBT people. As one of the oldest, largest, and most effective LGBT bar associations in the country, Legal is committed to promoting the advancement of LGBT legal professionals and making sure our community can access vital rights and resources. To make this important work possible, our 40th anniversary dinner is the largest fundraising event of the year for the Legal Foundation. For more information on the event, including sponsorship and ticket information, visit us on the web at www.legal.org. We're back. Um, So Lambda Legal, my previous organization, has been explaining to courts for years that federal law, if properly understood, protects LGBT people from employment discrimination. Lambda Legal succeeded in convincing an en banc Seventh Circuit in Hively v. Ivy Tech, but the Eleventh Circuit ruled against the claim of Jamika Evans. Jamika is a Savannah security guard in Georgia who was harassed at work and forced um, from her job because she was a lesbian. So Lambda Legal filed cert petition with SCOTUS in an attempt to secure a nationwide injunction that sexual orientation discrimination violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. To my great disappointment, and Lambda Legal's, and, and certainly to the community, SCOTUS rejected their petition. So can you explain the argument that's being made here by Lambda Legal and others? Why are some, including the EEOC, persuaded that sexual orientation is covered by Title VII and others not so much? Well, it, uh, it comes to a much broader understanding of sex and what is sex and how does sex uh, affect our lives. Uh, I think the problem is that uh, there are various schools of thought of statutory interpretation. Uh, One school of thought says we have to try to figure out what the legislature intended to do at the time they passed the statute. Uh, Another school of thought says that statutes are not like frozen on the date that they're adopted, but as our understanding of the issues that they were enacted to address uh, develops over time, uh, that the implications of banning sex discrimination are much broader and more complicated than what the legislators realized when they passed a floor amendment in the House of Representatives in 1964 to add sex because uh, the bill, the Civil Rights Act, as presented to Congress, did not mention sex as a prohibited ground of discrimination. That really uh, lit the fire under Title VII developments, uh, the uh, Price Waterhouse case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a woman who was up for partnership at Price Waterhouse. And uh, she was a bit of a drill sergeant type. You know, she was uh, used coarse language. She was rough with the troops that she supervised. Uh, she was loud. She was profane. And there were lots of partners in the office that said they, she didn't meet their image of a lady partner and voted against her partnership. And she sued under Title VII. 
And the court said that uh, people who encountered discrimination in the workplace because they failed to conform to stereotypes about how people of one sex or the other should act uh, have a claim under Title VII of sex discrimination. And in fact, in that case, I particularly noted it at the time, Mm -hmm. they started talking about gender. That Title VII doesn't only prohibit discrimination because of sex, but because of gender. Mm -hmm. And Justice Brennan wrote that plurality opinion, and I have to think he was very conscious about moving the vocabulary. And the concept of gender is the way you express your sex and your sexuality and how you dress, how you speak, how you uh, gesture even. Uh, And that if people are disadvantaged because their employer disapproves of the way they express their gender, that can be a Title VII violation. And it doesn't take very long to get from there to saying, well, transgender people clearly have a claim under Title VII, because in their process of transitioning, they are defying the stereotypes attached to the gender with which they were identified at birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are living out their gender in a different way, and that's what's getting them into trouble with the employer. Uh, And by early in this century, by the first decade in this century, we had gotten to the level of the Court of Appeals. The Sixth Circuit was the pioneer here. in holding that you state a Title VII claim if you're a transgender and you announce that you're transitioning and you get fired or forced out, uh, which was quite a breakthrough. And within a few years, the EEOC had adopted that in an opinion uh, concerning federal employment. And then the next step was to try to convince the EEOC and the courts, first of all, that this sex stereotyping or gender stereotyping theory could be extended to sexual orientation claims. Uh, And various different theories have been advanced uh, in support of it, Uh, some uh, bringing in the associational theory, uh, which dates back to the 1960s when uh, employers who disapproved of interracial dating and marriages would fire white employees for dating black people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the courts came around to accepting the idea that that's race discrimination. Even though the plaintiff is white, Title VII protects everybody from race discrimination, not just people of color, not just Asian Americans, African Americans. It also protects everybody if they're discriminated against because of their race or color. And same thing with sex. Men are protected from discrimination. Gay men are protected from discrimination if they fail to conform to male gender stereotypes. And of course, one of the biggest stereotypes is that people are heterosexual. The stereotype is that men are only uh, emotionally and sexually attracted to women. And men who encounter workplace discrimination because their employer disapproves of them being emotionally and sexually attracted to men, well, that's stereotype discrimination. The Seventh Circuit was the first circuit to really go on record in a very strongly worded decision, as you mentioned, the Hively case from last spring, and saying that discrimination because of sexual orientation is sex discrimination. Uh, And they spoke with approval of all the different theories that the EEOC had articulated in 2015 in the Baldwin case Mm -hmm. involving the gay air traffic controller from Florida. Uh, So this is the argument we're waiting to make to the Supreme Court. The Seventh Circuit was the first one to go on record accepting the proposition uh, and it was the full, full court. It was on bank on, because yeah. they were overruling a three-judge panel because the three-judge panel was bound by a prior three-judge panel decision. Uh, and now the same issue is playing out on the Second Circuit, uh, as we'll talk about in a second. But uh, 
the 11th Circuit had ruled in the Evans case, Lambda's case from Georgia, uh, just weeks before uh, the other way. There was a petition for on-bank review, Mm -hmm. which was turned down, and then Lambda filed a cert petition, which sat there for quite a while. Uh, Part of the problem was that the hospital never really presented a defense. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's funny, Lambda's attorney, Greg Nevins, he showed up at the 11th Circuit to argue the appeal, and there was no one on the other side. On the side. other side, yeah. No, so he was sort of arguing with, <laughs> arguing with the more conservative judges on the panel. Right. Uh, but then it got to the Supreme Court, and there was no response to the petition. Uh, so the clerk of the court actually reached out and uh, contacted the hospital and the attorney general's office and said, hey, aren't you guys going to file anything? Because they had actually circulated the case for conference. Yeah. And I think the issue was raised by the judges. How come we have nothing here on the other side? Yeah, uh, It was seen as a positive development that they were encouraging right. an argument on the other side that maybe we were going to get right. them to take the case. Maybe the court should have appointed an attorney for the hospital. But, <laughs> but the attorney general of Georgia did file a response. But their response, uh, among other things, raised technical issues. Yeah. And technical issues, if the Supreme Court wants to avoid a controversial case, they will look at a technical issue and say, well, this isn't a clean case. We can get rid of this. And I think that may be what's happening, or it may be that the court was waiting because the court knew what was going on in the Second Circuit. So they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And that tees up what we're going to talk about next, which is the Second Circuit decision that we're waiting for any day now. But we're living under a circuit split at the moment with a different interpretation. And it'll continue to be a circuit split because there are still circuits on the other side. So the Zarda case, uh, a petition for on-bank rehearing was granted. The hearing was held in September. We're waiting. It's closing in on how many months? Three months now coming up. Yeah. Uh, And the Second Circuit is usually pretty prompt. Uh, So it could be that the Supreme Court, they knew that, in fact, when they were holding their conferences, the Zarda oral argument had already happened. It got a lot of media attention, a lot of press attention. I can't imagine the justices were unaware of the fact if the same issue was being addressed in the Second Circuit. Uh, So I think if the Second Circuit follows the precedent of the Seventh Circuit, then the question is whether the employer will appeal. Yeah. Uh, And if the employer appeals, then we may be back up there in the Supreme Court on this issue, but too late for this term. Uh, Even if the Second Circuit decides it today, we're taping this on, on January 12th, even if they decided today the time to file a cert petition and then a response, and then if they grant cert the time to file briefs, we're not going to have oral argument this term. And that raises another big question, who's going to be sitting on the court next fall? Uh, and as to that, everyone's reading <laughs> tea leaves. Are you trying to give us all anxiety here? <laughs> everyone, is, everyone is reading tea leaves here. Uh, everyone knows that if any of the judges on the court retire, President Trump is probably going to appoint someone who on our issues is similar to Justice Gorsuch, who is pretty much opposed to anything we want. So we're all looking at counting SCOTUS clerks who's looking, who's hiring. The the interesting thing is uh, there have been reports in recent weeks that Justice Kennedy has hired a full complement of clerks for next term. And there was just the other day that Justice Ginsburg has not only hired a complement of clerks for next term, but for the following term. <laughs> so, you know, she's ready to go through 2020, spring of 2020. She, she uh, I think she wants to hang around at least until 2020 when everyone hopes we're not going to have a re-election of Donald Trump. I, I, I assume that there are a few people listening to this podcast who are eager to see a second Trump administration, <laughs> uh, or, oh. or even for him to still be there. Right. Uh, but at any rate, 
you know, who's going to be on the court next fall if the Zarda case goes up and is argued next term? No one knows. If the current composition of the court remains the same, it all turns on what Justice Kennedy will think, most likely. The other cert denial, uh, and this was a, a big disappointment to many people, because we thought this raised an issue that we thought had been pinned down this last June when the court decided Pavan versus Smith, uh, the case in which they reaffirmed that under the Obergefell decision, which is their marriage equality ruling for 2015, under the Obergefell decision, married same-sex couples are entitled to all the same rights and have all the same responsibilities, the same benefits, the same entitlements as married different-sex couples. Mm. That is, all marriages are equal in the eyes of the Supreme Court under the 14th Amendment. Uh, and in this case, that principle was being tested. Uh, the Pavan case involved birth certificates. If a uh, married lesbian gives birth, does her wife get to be on the birth certificate automatically? Yeah. Or do they have to jump through hoops and go through an adoption, all kinds of stuff? The state of Arkansas was saying, no, not automatic. The Supreme Court, uh, reversing the Arkansas Supreme Court, said, no, automatic, basically. They said, this case is decided by Obergefell. It was You're, a real slapdown to it the was Arkansas a, it was, Supreme Court. And, and in fact, they didn't even hold oral arguments. They just did it based on the uh, petitions. Right. Uh, they just summarily reversed in a short per curiam opinion with a long dissent by Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by <laughs> Our Thomas and Alito. about how bad he would be were absolutely Born out, correct. yes. Yeah. He said, oh, Obergefell doesn't necessarily decide this. Yeah. You know, all right. So a week later, the Texas Supreme Court was dealing with this case involving employee benefits for the city of Houston. And now this dates back to the Windsor case, actually. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in June of 2013, the Supreme Court said that under the Fifth Amendment, the federal government must treat equally same-sex marriages and different sex marriages performed under state law. All right. So Anise Parker, the out lesbian activist who was mayor of Houston at the time, <laughs> she, she goes to her city attorney and she says, hey, Shouldn't the same rule apply to us under the 14th Amendment? I mean, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment are coextensive with the Fifth Amendment. If the federal government has to provide equal recognition to legally married same-sex couples, shouldn't we in the city of Houston have to do that? And her, her city attorney said, yeah, it stands to reason. It's good legal reasoning. So she, by executive action, extended <clears throat> entitlement to spousal benefits to married uh, same-sex partners of uh, Houston City employees. And a bunch of anti-gay activists, uh, local Republican activists, uh, ran into uh, state court in Houston, and they got an injunction. They said, look, it's against the law in Texas to recognize same-sex marriages. It's right there. There's a statute. You can't recognize same-sex marriages. We don't allow them in Texas. Sure, people can go out of state because there are a handful of states that allow same-sex marriage. We're talking 2013. Mm -hmm. A handful of states that allow it, they can go and get married, but we're not required to recognize it because we got a law against it. She's violating the state law. In fact, she's violating the Constitution of Texas, which had an anti-same-sex marriage amendment in it. And uh, the uh, trial judge, because it, it was a pretty re reasonable argument at the time, uh, the trial judge said, yeah, she's violating state law. Give a preliminary injunction against these benefits going into effect. Uh, so that was appealed to the Texas Court of Appeals. And the Texas Court of Appeals just let the case sit there. Because after Windsor, you know what happened. Windsor set loose 
the marriage equality campaign nationwide. After yeah. Windsor, within uh, several months, there were marriage equality lawsuits on file in every state that banned same-sex marriage, including Texas. Mm-hmm. And so I think the Texas Court of Appeals, they just sat there and said, let's see how this plays out. Right. And in the meantime, a federal district judge in San Antonio struck down the Texas marriage ban. Uh, that went to the Fifth Circuit, which sat there and waited because they saw that if this was getting to the Supreme Court. Let's not get out in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, so they just sat there, uh, although they did hold an oral argument. After uh, the Supreme Court granted cert in the Obergefell case, uh, the Fifth Circuit did hold an oral argument, but they didn't issue an opinion. They were waiting. So after the Obergefell decision, the Fifth Circuit, within days, issued an opinion uh, affirming the district judge, in fact, affirming district judges in three states of the Fifth Circuit, striking down bans on same-sex marriage. All right, now the Texas Court of Appeals said, okay, we've got our marching orders. Uh, So they reversed the preliminary injunction. They sent an order back to the trial judge in Houston and said, dissolve your preliminary injunction and decide this case in accordance with the Fifth Circuit's ruling in DeLeon versus Perry, Mm -hmm. which was the Texas marriage equality case. Uh, All right, so Mr. Pidgeon files his uh, appeal in the Texas Supreme Court. And the Texas Supreme Court sure what to do here. Uh, Mr. Pidgeon was making this argument that the Obergefell case only directly struck down the bans on same-sex marriage in the four states of the Sixth Circuit. It did not address the Texas law. Well, Ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous, but, but technically correct. So, uh, but the Texas Supreme Court knew that it was, it, this was just going through a useless exercise. Uh, so they decided not to review the case. Supreme Court justices are elected by the Well, they're the re-elected. They're oh, re-elected sure. by the public. They stand for election. Sure. Uh, so Governor Abbott and his minions got the public all roused up to write, and th- they, they were deluged with postcards and letters <laughs> and everything else. The Supreme Court actually accepts amicus yeah. briefs by, by postcard. postcard. Evidently, because yeah. in their opinion, they said, we got all these communications, and we're going to treat them as amicus briefs. Yeah. Uh, so they changed their mind, and they decided to review the case, and their decision came out a few days after Pavan versus Smith. Now, you would think that after Pavan versus Smith, they wouldn't rush their opinion out. They would take a look at this new Supreme Court case and decide if it affected their uh, interpretation here, but they didn't. Right. They, they said, look, the Court of Appeals was wrong to tell the trial judge to follow the De Leon decision because only U.S. Supreme Court decisions are binding, and we are not going to uh, prejudice the issue by instructing them on what Obergefell means in this context. Mm-hmm. But we don't think it necessarily means that the city of Houston has to provide the same benefits to married same-sex couples. That's a a question that the uh, trial judge will have to decide. And Mr. Pidgeon gets a chance to make the argument. Uh, It's an astounding... It's an astounding... uh, Flies in the face of Pavan, Obergefell. And Obergefell. All right. Well, there was, of course, one more cert denial that we were kind of paying attention to, which was out of Mississippi, 1523, which is an odious law, but I'm sure, just to give you a taste... We'll be previewing that um, for the next next episode of yeah. Law Notes. Which we, we, we'll, we'll treat December 31st as a cutoff. Of what we're <laughs> I think that's fair. There's too much on our plates. Right. So we're going to take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a ruling from the Iowa Supreme Court that really lit my fire.
Okay, NYC JD LGBTs, Legal's eighth annual LGBT Law Year in Review CLE program is January 18th at 6.30 at Davis Polk. The program will cover the key federal and state court decisions and legislative developments of the past year, with some glimpses of what we might expect in 2018. Art will be a featured panelist, along with Noah Lewis, founder and executive director of Transcend Legal, Louise Melling, deputy legal director at the ACLU, and Brett Figluski, Legal's legal director. Learn something, get your CLE credits, and mingle with LGBT legal professionals during the reception that follows the program. Did I mention it's free? See you there. We're back. So Art has actually agreed to let me go on for a bit about a case on a topic that's close to my heart, homophobic jurors. So we're in Iowa, <laughs> and we got a gay man on trial. That's right, Art. We got a gay man on trial for uh, murdering someone. I've been doing a lot of work around state courts and jury fairness for LGBT people, particularly around voir dire. And here in the Iowa Supreme Court, as you previewed, we're dealing with a defendant who was Stephen Jonas, who was arrested in 2014 after another man, Zachary Paulson, was found dead in an Iowa parking lot. About a week beforehand, witnesses claimed to have seen Paulson rebuffing Jonas's attempt to hug and kiss him. At any rate, they met up at a bar the next week. There was a fight. A hammer was involved. Jonas finally stabbed Paulson several times, and he ran. Paulson died. Jonas was arrested. He later claimed self-defense, again with the hammer. So at Voidir, as you previewed, Jonas's lawyer asked potential jurors whether the defendant being gay would in any way influence their ability to be fair and impartial if they were selected to be a juror in the case. And one potential juror said yes, explaining, you know, I would try to keep an open mind here, but I would have a really hard time overlooking it. He even admitted that there would be bias in the back of his mind, um, but would try to be fair. Um, so the judge then, in an attempt to kind of rehabilitate the juror, asked whether he would be able to uh, follow the law, and the potential juror said yes, ultimately. So the issue here is that trial attorneys um, have unlimited strikes for cause. So if someone exhibits bias, you can strike them based on that um, based on on that bias. Trial attorneys only have a limited number of what are called peremptory challenges or strikes, which allows an attorney to get rid of a potential juror for any or no reason, so long as that reason isn't based on bias on a protected status. So Jonas's lawyer moved to strike the juror for cause uh, based on bias, but the judge permitted the juror to remain. So this forced the lawyer to use one of his limited peremptory strikes to remove the juror. Ultimately, all of the peremptory strikes were used up, and Jonas was convicted of second-degree murder. And, and we have to um, interject that, of course, because of the, uh, the biased juror was struck on a peremptory challenge, he wasn't on the jury. That's right. So we have no evidence that there was anyone on the jury who was biased. Right. So now we're getting to the appeal where we don't have this, um, you know, homophobic juror sitting on the jury. Um, so Jonas's argument is that he didn't receive a fair trial because he was forced to use peremptory strikes to get rid of this juror when the juror should have been struck for cause. And the state argued that this was not an abuse of discretion. And even if it was, it was harmless error. 
So a four-justice majority of the Iowa Supreme Court agreed with Jonas that the trial court unlawfully abused its discretion by refusing to disqualify this juror for cause. So that's good. And in reaching this um, conclusion, the majority heavily relied on a case uh, from the Supreme Court called Morgan v. Illinois, which had held that when actual bias is stated, later promises that that uh, juror will be fair can't avoid disqualification. However, three justices on the seven, you know, there are seven justices on the Iowa Supreme Court, three justices, uh, these are those three justices who were appointed by Governor Branstad after, um, you know, the infamous retention election where after the marriage equality ruling in Iowa, three justices of the Iowa Supreme Court were removed from the Supreme Court in a routine retention election um, by voters in the state of Iowa. So anti-gay bias actually was the, uh, on the part of voters, resulted in the appointment of these three justices who now held that this anti-LGBT bias from a juror was, uh, you know, not an abuse of discretion. So but, certainly but to, an But irony. to me, the, the irony about the case is that we didn't get a new trial for Mr. Jonas out of it because the court said, well, you know, however it happened, the biased ju- uh, juror wasn't seated. Right. And we have no evidence that the jury that decided that he was guilty was biased. I mean, there's no evidence of that. And furthermore, they said uh, at the time, at the trial, his attorney could have asked for an additional peremptory. Right. But didn't. So it was certainly close, but it's nevertheless good news. Um, and the takeaway is certainly that attorneys should always challenge for cause jurors who harbor anti-LGBT bias and resist attempts by, you know, judges or the court to rehabilitate those bi- those uh, jurors by simply saying they can set those views aside and be fair. Um, so keep Morgan v. Illinois in your arsenal. So we're going to take our last short break, and we'll return with our uh, note segment. We, like many of you, are deeply dismayed by recent events. Now more than ever, Legal wants you to know that we will continue to represent the interests of our members and the LGBT community at large with the same strong voice. We hope you will join us in doing the same. Your tax-deductible donations support the work of our foundation, including several pro bono legal clinics that are devoted to serving the LGBT community. We can't continue this work without your support, and we can't continue to reach all the people that Legal has reached in the community in the past year without your continuing support. There are many ways to support Legal. You can volunteer in the clinics. There are other ways and places to volunteer within Legal, and of course, your generous support, the law firms that support us, we're tremendously grateful. The clients and the walking clinic participants are tremendously grateful, and those donations sustain this work. Every day I marvel at the commitment and generosity of talent and time on the part of our volunteers, and it's such a blessing to be able to give back in some way and to contribute to the strength of our community. Thank you for your support. All right, our of note segment, Art, we're going to talk about more discriminatory bakers. Yeah, bakers who don't want to make wedding cakes for gay couples. Yeah. I don't know why, but uh, as people may recall from listening to our podcast last month, uh, the Supreme Court heard argument 
beginning of December in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case out of Colorado involving a baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay male couple. Well, we've got sort of a, a clone or mirror image case that came out of the Oregon Court of Appeals uh, in December, right at the end of December, December 28th, uh, in virtually the same case, although this time it was a lesbian couple. Mm-hmm. And in the Colorado case, it was the two gay men who went into the bakery with the mother of one of them. Right. In this case, it was one of the women who went into the bakery with her mother. Yeah. And uh, as soon as the baker learned that this was for a same-sex couple, the baker said, oh, no, we don't do those. Right. You know, we, we have religious objections to same-sex marriage. And in fact... Uh, when they left and then the mother went back because the mother was really outraged right. here. Right, and that explains the dignitary yeah. harm. Dignitary. That and, and the baker starts quoting Deuteronomy to her, you know, and stuff, and abominations and all this right. kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and, and Industries, which enforces their public accommodations law, found this to be a violation, rejected all First Amendment defenses, and was affirmed by the Court of Appeals of Oregon. So we're waiting here for the Masterpiece Cake Shop case to drop. You know, it's, it was argued beginning of December. It could come at any time, really. But I think we're going to have a divided court, which means it takes longer because they have to circulate a majority opinion. Then the dissenters have to write their opinions. and They have to be circulated. And the majority yeah. has a chance to react. So uh, cases that aren't unanimous take a lot longer. And the norm with LGBT issue cases is for them to come out in June. June. Yep. So it may be June, or it could be earlier. Which is a great time to get married. Right, right. And and if we have the Supreme Court saying, hey, Baker's out there. Yeah. But remember, this only applies in states that ban sexual orientation, discrimination, and public accommodations. Right. Uh, which we, we don't even have an argument under federal law, because when Title VII was amended to add sex, they didn't also amend the public, other title. Right. in in, uh, the Civil Rights Act on public accommodations. And so the federal law doesn't ban sex discrimination in public accommodations. Uh, So we have to get it through state law or we have to get an amendment to federal law. Right. And this also just shows that state courts and agencies are getting this stuff right. Um, Right. This is, I think now we are unanimous. Uh, Every appellate ruling in a state court involving a refusal of marriage-related uh, goods or services to same-sex couples has held that it violates the public accommodations law because, of course, these cases have only come up in states that ban sexual orientation discrimination in public accommodations and has rejected all First Amendment defenses. All right, so Justice Kennedy, if you're listening, <laughs> this serves as your reminder. <laughs> Listen to the states in this instance. So thank you for listening. Um, To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or um, a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.legal.org. This and future podcasts can be found online on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us a lot of stars, to comment. It really helps elevate the podcast and make sure other people can find us. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Follow me at Ed Lesh, E-D-L-E-S-H, and Art at at A-S-Leonard1. Thanks again. Back in February.